Please turn with me to uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11. We continue to make our way through this uh, this book that has become a kind of a staple for us over these last three plus years. We're reading this morning from chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. And so follow along as we read this this portion of God's word together. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? This is God's word for us, his people, Jew and Gentile. But note in the text, it's especially written, spoken to Gentiles. So it's for us. Let's pray for God's help as we look at it. God, give us your grace. Give us your assistance. Grant us your spirit so that This word can be the help and encouragement to us that you intend for it to be. Mold us, shape us by this, your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
when you um, when you are confronted by a particular problem or perplexity, what do you do? You try to find a specialist, right? You try to find somebody who knows more about that problem or that perplexity than you do. You, you go to the experts. That's what preachers do when they run into a passage that's especially perplexing, like Romans 11, 11 to 24. They appear to be really smart, but let me tell you, they're not. They go to the books, they go to the commentaries, they go to the scholars, they go to the people who are smarter, wiser, more discerning than they are. And that's especially true when you come to a passage like this. But here's the problem. You go to the experts on this passage and you don't get any help. Why is that? This is why. I have somewhere in the vicinity of 20 to 25 commentaries on Paul's letter to the Romans. More than any other book. My library of commentaries on Paul's letter to the Romans, from Calvin to Luther to Martin Lloyd-Jones to to Barrett and Bart and Barker, Lane and Michaels, my list of commentaries pales by comparison with the list of commentaries that Sinclair Ferguson has in his library. He says he has over 120 different commentaries. And we're not talking about books. We're talking about individual authors. My guess is that he has all of Lloyd-Jones' commentaries on Romans, which numbers in the 15 or 16 volume range. And he's got 120 for the same reason I have 25. When you come to a perplexing passage, you need to go to the experts. But when you come to this passage, here's what you find. Whether you've got 25 or 125, you find no uniformity of understanding, interpretation, and application when it comes to this passage. Even if you distill it down, even if you narrow it down from the broad range of people who have made comments on this book to those who are a part of our theological family, the the post-Reformation, Protestant, Reformed kinds of folks, you can't find a unanimity of understanding regarding this passage. And that actually leads some people to skip over it entirely. They just don't even bother with it. They say, why bother? Well, I think that's being irresponsible. I think it's uh, failing, actually, in one's duty as a preacher and a teacher. So we're going to wade into this thing, and we're going to try to make as much sense of it as we possibly can. But there are perplexing phrases, perplexing ideas that are here. What does it mean, verse 12, when Paul says, their failure means riches for the Gentiles? What does full inclusion mean? Verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Later, when he refers to all Israel being saved, what's he talking about? To whom is he referring? There's a lot of stuff that's very, very perplexing through these verses. 
what is clear, it seems to me, among other things, is that the Apostle Paul in this passage is referring to something in the future for Jews. Something future to him, and as we make our way through, something future even to us in our day. Some future thing Paul is writing about in these verses. Now, you look at this, you read it, you ask these questions. What does he mean here? What does he mean there? Here's my suggestion about how we approach this. And I frankly think this is good practice when it comes to Bible study in general. When you come to a perplexing passage, something that raises a bunch of questions and about which there's no uniformity of understanding, interpretation, and application, I think the wise thing is to take a step back and remind yourself of what it is that you do know. Remind yourself of what it is that is clear. So, if you'll indulge me, and you don't really have any choice, because this is what I'm going to do this morning, if you'll indulge me, I want to remind us of some things that are clear, because those things that are clear are great helps to us as we come to terms with things that are less clear. It's good practice. It's good Bible study practice. So here are some things, it seems to me, that are clear. Let's think first about what is clear from the book of Romans. And here's number one. There is one gospel for both Jew and Gentile. There is one gospel for both Jew and Gentile. There is not one plan for Jews and a second plan for Gentiles. And I think that is abundantly clear in Paul's letter to the Romans. If you go back to chapter 1 and the 16th verse, Paul writes this after he's introduced himself, after he's greeted these Romans, Uh, After he has indicated his desire to come and see them, that's in verse 8 of chapter 1 and through verse 15. Then in verse 16, he, he establishes what is basically the theme for this letter, for these following 15 and a half chapters. And it's this verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel, good news, right? Good news. Great Good news. Massively, hugely significant, great good news. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And those two designations are Paul's way of referring Uh, to and distinguishing two different groups of people, the Jewish people and their culture and the Gentile world and its culture, Jew and Greek. One gospel, and Paul's not ashamed of it. And this whole letter is unpacking significant elements of that gospel and applying that gospel to these two groups. Do you remember remember this as we make our way through? This letter that Paul is constantly interacting with the Jews and the Gentiles. In the passage we've just read, he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. 
He's constant. It's like, you know, somebody said to me before the service this morning, I want to record the fact that I'm here. I'm not at home watching the finals of the French Open, right? Tennis, right? It's a ball being bounced back and forth between two different places. That's essentially what Paul is doing. He's bouncing this gospel back and forth between these two groups, both of whom are represented in this church in Rome or in these churches in Rome. But it is one gospel, and it is for both. And a part of that gospel that you find in this opening section of Paul's letter to the Romans is this universal indictment. It is an indictment both of Jew and Gentile. Verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, whether Jew or Gentile. And through chapter 1, you remember this, if you think back a number of months, years, you'll remember that in chapter 1, the apostle is taking aim particularly at the Gentile culture. But when he moves to chapter 2, he's taking particular aim at the Jewish culture. The man he refers to in chapter 1 of verse 2, chapter 2 verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He's thinking about the Jews who are looking at Gentile culture. They're hearing Paul read this indictment against, against Gentile culture that's outlined in chapter 1, and they're in effect saying, get them, smash those nasty Gentiles, crush those creeps. You're on our side, crush them, get them. But then he says in chapter 2, Who are you, O man, to wish for that upon them? You're exposed to the same thing. The things of which they're guilty, you're guilty. And then he gets to the end of chapter 3, and the indictment in chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, and then through verse 20 is simply this, that sin is a bondage and the wrath of God is a threat. And whether Jew or Gentile, verse 9, all alike are under sin. One common indictment and one common solution for Jew and Gentile. And what is that solution for both? It is verses 21 through 26 of chapter 3, this incredibly dense, tightly packed articulation, expression, exposition of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ for sinners. And then in verses 27 and following, Paul says this, then what becomes of our boasting? Who's boasting? The boasting of Jews. He's a Jew. Our boasting. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Is there privilege for Jews? Extraordinary privilege. He alludes to it in the first verse of chapter 3. He comes back to that privilege in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9. There is extraordinary privilege for Jews, just like there is extraordinary privilege for covenant children today. Even when they dump the baptismal waters all over the floor. They don't get disqualified. There is extraordinary privilege for covenant children. 
But privilege does not mean a different path. There is one path for those who know the privileges of being in the covenant community and those who happen to be outside those privileges. And what is that path? Verses 27 and following. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Yet, nada, God forbid, never in a million years. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. One path for those who are privileged to be in the covenant community and those who in the providence of God find themselves on the outside but whose responsibility is ours. We are responsible for those on the outside to go to them and show them what this path is. And then in chapter 4, what does Paul do? He shows examples, two examples. Paul uses the example of David And he uses the example of Abraham to show that this is the way it's always been. It's always been this way. How was David restored to fellowship with God? David, the great sinner. David, the adulterer. David, the murderer. David, the conspirator. I was reading. I'm I'm in the Kings now in my Bible reading. But I was reading in the Samuels and it never hit me before that when David conspired together, With Joab, it wasn't just Uriah the Hittite who died. There were other soldiers who died as well. The blood of a countless number, we don't know how many, but a countless number, not in the sense that it's an infinite number, but a number that's not known. There is a number of men who died and whose blood All of that blood was on the hands of David. And how was David restored to fellowship with God? Not by some path apart from the mercy, the kindness, the compassion, the forgiveness of God. It's not on the basis of his works, not on the basis of his obedience, but solely the grace and mercy of God appropriated by faith. That's what Paul's word is here. And then he goes on to Abraham. Same with Abraham. How was Abraham justified? Not a different path, same path. Abraham, who's the father of the Jewish nation. How was he restored to fellowship with God? Folks, this simply cannot be said often enough. I can't hear it enough. I've been hearing it for over 40 years since I heard it for the first time. When I first came to understand something of the depth of my own need, And it began to be clear to me that God had taken upon himself to do for me what I'm powerless to do for myself. That I can't pedal fast enough, I can't dig fast enough to dig myself out of the hole that I've dug by my own sin. It is grace, it is mercy. Everything we've been alluding to and referring to in this 
service thus far. It is God drawing near to the weak and the helpless. It is God coming into the midst of the world in the person of Jesus Christ to be a redeemer. If Jesus doesn't come, nobody's redeemed. Nobody paddles fast enough. Nobody digs fast enough to get out of the hole. David was restored. Abram was restored in the same way. And I don't know if this passage is in your Bibles. I think that it is. But I wonder how many of us have heard this and thought about this and contemplated this. Galatians 3, another letter of the Apostle Paul, where he's, he's dealing with many of the same issues in this letter. He's trying, to, he's trying to deal with people who want to impose law, who want to impose a kind of a, an alternate path upon those who come to faith in Christ. That's what he's dealing with. And in chapter 3, verse 7, he writes this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and daughters too. Sons... Is a, we've talked about this. Sons is not a, a gender-related term. It's a term that has to do with honor, the exaltation of the firstborn, male, female. It is those who are of faith who are the true heirs, sons of Abraham. And then this, verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, you thought that the gospel showed up when Jesus showed up. But the gospel showed up First, in my favorite verse in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, when God spoke the good news, when God spoke the gospel and said that from the seed of the woman, one was going to come who would crush the head of the serpent. And then in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, God sharpens the focus of that promise by making a promise to Abraham and saying, in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And if you look a little bit farther in Genesis chapter, or in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, you see Paul understanding that promise, those promises made to Abraham to be fulfilled in whom? In Christ. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now, Paul understood Greek and Paul understood Hebrew. He understood that the Hebrew word for seed can be interpreted as a plural and it can be interpreted as a singular noun. But Paul is doing the work of good historical redemptive exegesis. Is that a mouthful for you? He's simply doing what Jesus talked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus about. He's simply showing us what Jesus said to them, that everything in the Scriptures, the law, 
the prophets and the Psalms finds its culminant express expression in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. So here's what we're seeing, and this is what we're saying, and this is what we're reminding ourselves of. We're reminding ourselves of this, that there is one unfolding story across the whole of the Scriptures. There is promise and there is fulfillment. There's before the cross and there's after the cross. But there is one unfolding story of redemption. There certainly are surprises. There certainly are surprises as that story unfolds. And those surprises, the Bible calls mysteries. Not things that are incomprehensible, but things that are only known when they are revealed, when they are disclosed, when you see the fulfillment of them. Certainly are mysteries. But those mysteries are not alterations of the storyline. They are not deviations from the storyline. They are enlargements of it. They are expansions of it. They're like moving from black and white photography into living color moving pictures. Same storyline. Not an alteration or departure from it like the tulip that you plant up north, right? The bulb, the thing that goes into the ground, looks very, very different from the thing that comes out of the ground in the spring. But they're connected, aren't they? And the thing that comes out of the ground is so marvelously, spectacularly beautiful by comparison with the bulb. But it's all there in the bulb. And as it comes out of the ground, there's a surprise and another surprise. And as it grows to maturity, the full beauty of the thing is a thing that is stunning because you couldn't comprehend how glorious it was in its seed form, its seminal form. So there's one gospel which includes one indictment of both Jew and Gentile And one solution for both the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. And there is one path to acceptance with the Father, and that is faith. Faith in a promised Messiah. Faith in a person who has come and lived and died and been raised. The Messiah who has accomplished and completed his work. Not one plan for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. One plan for Jew and Gentile, one gospel for both. And here's a second thing, and we'll refer to this just really quickly, but I'd encourage you to read back through Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you see this idea of the unity of the Bible, this unfolding story, this one idea of redemption with one central character that has application both to Jew and Gentile. You see that illustrated in Paul's use of the Old Testament. We've referred to this several times. Again, we're being reminded of some things here, some things that are clear to us or that should be clear to us. Paul's use of the Old Testament. Remember the first question that he addresses back in chapter 9? It's a question that is raised regarding the reliability of the Word of God. Right? 
Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why would he say that? He would say that because in the minds of people who are hearing him preach this gospel, they're saying, well, Paul, in view of widespread unbelief among, among the Jews, it must mean that the word of God has failed. The promise of God has failed. That's why he says that, because he knows that's the question that is in people's minds. But he says again, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And what does he do for the next three chapters? For the next three chapters, in point after point after point, he proves his point by alluding to the scriptures that he had available and that all of these folks had available to them, the Old Testament scriptures. He does it as he talks about the unbelief of the Jews. He does it as he talks about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Look at Romans 10, verses 22 and following again. I'm sorry, uh, chapter 9, verses 22 and following. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, her who was not beloved I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And then verse 27, concerning the widespread unbelief in Israel, Isaiah cries out, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. And verse 29, if the Lord of hosts had not left an offspring, we would have been as Sodom and become as Gomorrah. You see, it's all there. We said this several weeks ago. Paul repeatedly referring to the Old Testament scriptures to show, to prove, to demonstrate that what he is experiencing in his day, widespread unbelief among Israelites, the ingathering of the Gentiles, a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, it is all there in the scriptures. And that underscores this idea of the internal integrity and coherence of the scriptures. One book, one story, one central character, from beginning to end, not plan A, not plan B. And then here's a third thing that seems clear to me at least. And you see the citation for this at Romans 9, verses 22 to 24. True Israel is one people called from among both Jew and Gentile. We've alluded to it in Galatians 3. You see it in Romans chapter 9. One people gathered from Jew and Gentile who are the true seed of Abraham, the true sons and daughters of Abraham. And Paul illustrates that in chapter 11 by his reference to the one olive tree. There are natural branches that can be cut off because of unbelief. And then there are wild branches that are grafted in. How are they grafted in? They're grafted in through faith. And this actually is a big deal for the Apostle Paul, which we'll continue to see as we work through uh, chapter 11. This actually is a very, very big deal to the Apostle Paul. 
this idea that out of the two, God is making one people. Ephesians chapter 2 is is probably the classic passage to illustrate this. Ephesians 2 verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. I'm sorry, that's 3, chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, this is the thing that Paul was after. He's very, very concerned to overcome these historic ethnic divisions that existed between Jew and Gentile and to show the world the power of the gospel, that the gospel not only reconciles individuals to God, but it reconciles those at this horizontal level who are estranged and alienated from one another, beginning with this estrangement that's existed between Jew and Gentile. It's overcome. Paul labors to see the body of Christ expressed and expressing a real unity that transcends racial and ethnic and cultural and historic differences. Now, I have to ask a question at this point. And I admit to being troubled by this. I think I've mentioned it on a couple of Sunday evenings. It seems to me, it seems to me that in a lot of our thinking, there is a tendency to want to keep separate what Paul seems so passionate to bring together. You understand what I'm talking about? There's a ton of interest in Israel. There's a ton of interest in Jews. Paul is interested in Israel. Paul is interested in Jews. Chapter 11 is all about that. But this idea that there is something else going on that pertains to Jews as distinct from what is going on and pertains to Gentiles seems to be foreign to the apostles' thinking. He wants all of those distinctions obliterated. He wants the visual distinction that was there in the temple, a literal wall that kept Gentiles out. He wants that kind of thinking obliterated completely. So that, as he says... In Galatians 3, again, there is no longer slave or free. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer male or female. Do those distinctions still exist at some level in some way? Yes. But the gospel, the one gospel of Jesus Christ, overcomes all of those things that used to divide and separate. And so here's a fourth thing. And with these last two things, I have to close, but these are reminders, reminders to us. One gospel, illustrated by the way Paul uses the Old Testament, resulting in the creation of one people made up from Jew and Gentile. Here's a fourth thing I would suggest to you is a motivating thing, a driving thing, a thing that should matter as much to us as it does to the Apostle Paul. And that is, 
the exaltation of the Son of God in the salvation of the nations. Let me tell you, that's what the Father cares about. The Father cares about the exaltation of the Son in the salvation, not of one people, but of the nations. Here's the proof text. I'm mimicking the Apostle Paul. It's Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 5, a passage that clearly refers to the servant who would come, who would later be described in chapters 52 and 53 as a suffering servant. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Isaiah 49, 6, God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preservative of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's the Father saying that about the Son. That is what the Son wants. It is what the Father wants. The Son wants for the salvation of the Father to extend to the ends of the earth. The Father wants for the Son to be exalted as the one who secures that salvation for the nations. Is that what we want? Is that what motivates us, moves us, drives us? It certainly drove the Apostle Paul, and I'll just say this one last thing. And I'm stealing this from Sinclair Ferguson, and I think it is a brilliant, brilliant insight. Maybe it's original to him. Maybe he got it from one of those 125 commentaries that he has on his show. But here's his admonition to me and his admonition to you. Whatever your view of these chapters... Whatever it is you think about all Israel being saved, about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, if your view doesn't lead you to a deep passion for the lost, your view is not worth the mental energy you have expended in getting to it. Because what drives the apostle to write these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, is his passion for the lost, his brethren according to the flesh. What matters to us most, what should matter to us most, is that the Father be glorified in the exaltation of the Son as the Son accomplishes to the uttermost a salvation that extends to the ends of the earth that gathers in both Jew and Gentile from the remnant of Israel and from every nation on the face of the earth. That's the big deal here. Come tonight and I'll share some stories, some remarkable things that I heard, that I learned while I was in Africa. Not the least of which is a mosque where a group of people called the Muslim followers of Esau. 
gather week by week by week, not to study the Koran, but to study the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. That is a thing that brings joy to the hearts of the Father and the Son. And I hope it does to ours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think about these things, as we wrestle with them and seek to come to terms with them, give us grace. Give us grace that our hearts might be stirred up. That we might have the passion of the Apostle Paul and indeed the passion of the Father and the Son for the ingathering of one people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. We ask in your name. Amen.